Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, Poddleters. Welcome back to season five of Adulting. This time, the question is why. And this week, I speak to Mona Shalaby, who is a data journalist and the data editor at The Guardian US, why do facts deceive us? So we go into the nitty gritty of how statistics can be quite confusing, can be manipulated or biased, and why it's really important that we try to use our analytical minds when reading information. I really hope that you enjoy the episode and let me know what you think afterwards. As always, please do rate, review and subscribe. Bye! Hi guys and welcome to Adulting. Today I am joined by Mona Shalaby. Perfect. Perfect. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm good, thanks. How are you? Really good, thank you. Very pleased to have you here from America. Yeah. I was just saying to Mona when I, I emailed her this morning and I got an email back going, sorry, I'm abroad. And I went, oh my God, I've completely got this wrong. And then I realised abroad for you is, despite being a Londoner, you're yeah. a, yeah. Yeah. So for people who don't know, do you want to tell them a little bit about who you are and what you do? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm a data journalist. I live in New York and I also make illustrations. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, 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 Scott, what was you going to say? But I was going to say, and you're on lots of shows. I've seen you on The Fix. Oh, yeah. You come yeah. and do that. And did, were you on something years ago? Because I feel like I've always known who you are. Oh, well, I've done a few different, like, TV things, I suppose. I made a four-part video series about vaginas that was on The Guardian. Amazing. So maybe that. Um, I've done, like, a few British TV shows. Like, I've done Frankie Boy. I did Have I Got News For You once. Um, I did the election night show on Channel 4. I remember that as well. That was petrifying. I can imagine. I had absolutely nothing to say at the end of the night, just kind of sat there in silence. Yeah, I don't know. I've done a few different things, yeah. And I guess now at the minute, you're, one of the things I think you do so well is you're kind of making statistics cool. So your Instagram page is your own hand-drawn illustrations of really interesting and fun facts and also explaining how to get through the kind of fake news barrier that we all experience, especially on social media media because people just say whatever they want to say and then unfortunately a lot of people will read it and take it as gospel because there's no no one monitoring what's being said yeah yeah I hope that like I think a big problem with journalism is that the model is kind of like here are the facts and if you're smart you will believe these facts, right? And, like, the the model is kind of based on sources, it feels like. So it's like, I trust the Guardian, I don't trust the Sun, yeah. I don't trust the Mirror. So it's all about the source. And I think that that model is kind of changing a little bit because now a lot more of our notion of trust is built on individuals, right, mm. rather than organisations. So it's like, do I trust this one particular author? And if I haven't heard of the author, then it's kind of hard to navigate. Anyway, basically, I also think that model is, like, not patronising, but I also think it's not quite... It kind of doesn't really acknowledge how smart our readers are. Mm. And so to say to readers, here are the facts and you can either believe me or not believe me, feels really problematic. So what I'm trying to do is to say these these are the facts kind of as I know them. These are the things that I'm not really sure about. And here's how I ended up here. So trying to show as much as possible the process. And in a way, that's what's really exciting and easy about statistics and maths, right? Because like with like when you were in school, right? I feel like people enjoyed maths at the point when they could understand all of the steps. Right? Yeah. So you want, you enjoyed maths when you knew how to do long multiplication and you saw exactly how you move over the little number and it carries over and blah, 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 or long division. And then you start to not like maths when you just don't get how you get to the answer. It's just this is the answer. Totally. And you don't understand the process anymore. So if you if you do data journalism well, you can say, like, these are the crime rates. But these are the crime rates in these different areas. But actually, these areas are more populated. So that's why there's more crime. And these are the crime rates once you adjust for population. So I've shown you all of my steps to get yeah. there. And hopefully you've come on the journey with me and understood. Sorry, weird rant anyway. No, yeah. it's, it's not weird. It's what's interesting is there also seems to be there's lack of bias with yours. And it well, obviously, there's always going to be some kind of bias in that. But it's 
it's really letting the facts speak. Whereas unfortunately, I think sometimes what happens with journalism is, especially if someone isn't a data journalist, they'll take a set of statistics and just fit them into their mm. narrative to be whatever, whether that's like sugar's going to give you cancer. And because we live in this clickbaity age of people just wanting to sell stories and we we need this almost like visceral reaction to something to read it. People won't engage mm. with something if it seems too fluffy. They want like bang. But unfortunately what happens is that data and that information is being read on a level where it's like you've skewed that. It doesn't, do you know what I'm, yeah, I mean? Yeah. And I think you're right. I think the data itself is always quite messy. And that's one of the reasons why I try to handle the illustrations, because I'm trying to show you that actually the facts are messy. Mm. The, the facts of like reality is messy. It doesn't fit to any clear narrative. And there's like complicated nuance there. And I also think that by hand drawing it, like it is really biased. It does completely come from my perspective. That's true. And by hand drawing it, it's a reminder that like a real person did this. It's not like when it's a computer generated graph, I feel like people just feel like, oh, it's neutral. Mm. It's like science. It's objective. It's perfect. But still, to get to the computer generated graph, a human has made all of these decisions about which points are interesting yeah. and important. Um, but yeah, I still feel like at the moment, it's funny that we're having this conversation because I actually feel kind of like a little bit frustrated, I suppose, in my career. And it feels a little bit like... I don't know, you do interviews like this where people are like, oh, the charts are great. And I'm like, but are they making a difference? I think you're reaching a different demographic, a different audience, because I think especially like millennials, we actually do want to get understand how you got from A to B. Mm. We're not satisfied with just being chucked out information because we've been told to question everything, especially because of fake news and all of that kind of culture. Yeah. So it means that having someone who can actually... Also, we do understand the nuances. So for instance, like we now understand how different intersections of race and gender and ability will impact numbers and how when, if a newspaper does say use a statistic and they don't, and they fail to acknowledge, yep. but why is that yep. like this? I think we then feel a little bit of injustice where you are acting as kind of like a middle ground voice that says, no, look, I know that. Mm. Because I think a lot of us are more, maybe more, not well read, but we have more access to education, especially through the internet than we did before. So then when you see these blanket statements, we're like, but we know that that falls flat. It doesn't yeah. add up. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes loads and loads of sense. And I think that nuance that breaks it down is really, really important. But another problem with data, right, is that most of the data that's collected kind of mirrors whatever society's assumptions are, right? Yeah. So, for example, on every single survey or whatever, we're still faced with questions like, are you a man or a woman? And so all of th that limits what I can tell you because I can only ever really say, you know, um, I don't know, like these are wages and these are the wages, how they vary depending on whether you're a man or a woman. I can't tell you what the, how those wages look if you're a gender non-conforming person or right. if you're a trans person because it's just not there in the yeah. data set. So that's another massive limitation in terms mm. of what I do that I can add that little bit of, I can add nuance according to demographics and, and stuff like that. But even then, I'm only limited by what is actually in the data. And if we're not pushing to collect data on the things that matter to us, do you know what I mean? Yeah, well, I just read um, Invisible Women by Caroline Criado Perez, which oh, is about the gender data Oh, I really need cap. to read that. It's mind-blowing. Yeah. I literally, every page, I'm like, oh my mm. God, to my boyfriend, did you know, in Sweden, blah, blah, blah. Because you just, it's actually so shocking. Yeah. But then the other interesting thing with the data is, I completely agree, like, we do need data and statistics to do one thing. But then you have other shows like um, The Great Hack and stuff where it talks about big data and how dangerous that is mm. and like I think we need everyone needs to have a better understanding of what I guess data is at ground level and then working up because I don't I think data seems scary like one of the quotes from that documentary was like data is worth more now than oil like it's mm. the most yeah. uh, valued yeah. commodity so I think that's also uh, partly because of people like me doing a bad job of explaining the differences between those two. Like I say I'm a data journalist, but most of the time I'm actually dealing with statistics, right, yeah. which is slightly different. So the kind of personal data that we're sharing with these corporations all the time, like often with a very, very strange notion of consent, is completely different to, for example, filling out a census form right. and the government using that data to understand how to distribute public funds. They're totally, totally different. And I think what's hard for me is that, like, I come from a place of, like, deep scepticism, being unsure about how, like, you know, how you feel about government, especially when it's, like, a government that's in power, like I'm in America, and it's, like, a government that's in power who... Um, is not one that I think gives a shit about my best interests whatsoever. Yeah. But at the same time, the government 
the government people who are responsible for analyzing those data sets, by and large, they're civil servants in America, in Britain, in in like most of the countries where people will be listening to this, I assume. Um, they're civil servants who actually aren't politically partisan. Right. And the way that they're analyzing those data sets is generally like very, very neutral. And so those statistics I have much more faith in than a company who's publishing statistics that say nine in 10 consumers or whatever. Right. Or even like all of that kind of public data, like the Cambridge Analytica stuff, it's motivated. It's data that's being analysed for a specific end, which is different generally to government data. And I know that makes you sound really naive, but it just is slightly different. You know? No, it is different. But as you're saying that, I was also thinking, I wonder if like, say you consensually give your data as in like you fill out a mm-hmm, form. Mm-hmm. Do you not think that that also might change your natural instinct because you know like do you remember at school when you see that test like what am I going to be when I grow up and I would literally make it say doctor I would like ask the questions and be like I'm going to be a doctor not like that consciously but pretty much on a level where I was like well I'm going to be caring but it was it was um it was calculated but in like a I don't know. Do you know what I mean? No, no, no. I totally know what you mean. But now we're getting to two different kinds of surveys, right? So there's like there's like surveys that are like polls and questionnaires, which are like, who do you plan on voting for? Which I've always been so, so critical of. Like, I watched the whole election play out mm. in the in the U- US. I watched all of these people I have so much faith that Hillary Clinton would win based on surveys where people lied or people didn't answer or the people who answered weren't representative. Like, I'm very, very skeptical of those things. But there's a difference between that... And a census form that asks, where do you live? What race right. are you? How old Got are you? you? How much do you earn? Like, I mean, the how much do you earn question, sure, people might might fib. But like, why, do you know what I mean? Mm. There's just a difference between those two kinds of data sets. So I think, and I also think that to a certain extent, people get that. Like, you know that if it's a survey, people lie. But like, I don't know. I yeah, guess those things yeah. are more like objective. Yeah. When it comes to, um, I don't know if you ever get this, but people love to deny that there's a gender pay gap. Mm. But I know that you've done quite a few like bits on this. What Can you give any like hard statistics on gender pay gap? It's um, really interesting. I don't have the numbers in front that's of me okay. right this second just because I don't have my laptop on me. But I think that's a really, really good example of something that people push back on that ultimately comes from like, Either a misunderstanding of the way that the numbers work, which when it's a misunderstanding like that, I also think it's the job of journalists to correct that misunderstanding. So I'm not just putting on them. Or like a willful desire to like misunderstand those numbers. So the thing that I get told most often when I publish these dates, like the, the gender pay gap is, well, men and women do different jobs. This is inevitable because women are more likely to go into bad paid jobs and women take um, time off to have kids, all of this stuff. To which my first answer is like, well, even if you are right, don't you think the fact that women go into worse paid jobs is still a structural problem in society that actually needs to be fixed? Because why is it then that little girls aren't saying, oh, like, I want to go into this or, you know, why, why is it that society is still structured that? Women assume that they are more naturally inclined to do caregiving roles. Mm. Men assume they are less naturally inclined to it. And why is it that society doesn't value caregiving roles enough to actually pay for those roles? First thing. So that's kind of meeting someone where they're at and assuming that they're right. Secondly, though, actually, no. These statistics I'm sharing with you, they control for how many hours a week people work. So it's even when men and women work the same number of hours per week, women earn less. Even when you take men and women that are in the same profession, in the same industry, women earn less. So, like, yeah, even if, like, do you know what I mean? Either way, you're wrong. Yeah. Totally. And then what are you, you going to respond to me? And then that's when it, it's really sad because the conversation then ends up going back to sources. Mm. And then people will be like, well, the starting point wasn't your sources wrong. The starting point was your calculations are wrong. And then when you say, no, 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 my calculations are right, then they're like, well, I don't trust the government numbers then. Well, because they just don't want to admit their privilege. Yeah. Um, also, I think that's another great thing that you're doing is you're bringing stats to, to problems that people are really interested in. Whenever I heard data and statistics, it would make me think of like looking at doing mass A level, which I didn't do, but that was kind of like your in- entry level. Mm. And since then, if someone said data and statistics, I'm like, no thanks. But when you're talking about things like gender and you do discuss really interesting topics, especially when it comes to race and gender and all those things, that's kind of my remit. That's what I find really interesting, the social cultural stuff. Yeah. Um, and so I think bridging the gap on those conversations where it is like, I mean, how did you get into it? Because I know that you work at The Guardian now. Mm-hmm. But 
Are you one of the only people that specialise in kind of what you do? I don't really know it about any other statisticians like you. So it's like an industry called data journalism and it is relatively small. There are some people over here that do it and there's people in the US that do it. Um, and I got into it because when I left university, I went to go and work for the International Organization for Migration and we were finding out how many Iraqis had been forced from their homes as a result of the war. So I was doing loads of like statistical analysis on what Iraqis needed and where they were. But like Iraqis never got to see the data. It was just shared with the international, with like a few members of the international community in order to get money to fund the projects that we were doing. And I just became really, really concerned with like that lack of transparency. Like I like it when people comment underneath my Instagram post saying this is wrong. Mm. Like this is wrong based on like where I live or this is wrong based on like my personal experiences. And I've got it wrong before. Like I really have. And I think anyone who publishes information publicly will get it wrong. Totally. It's part of the nature of the job. Um, so anyway, I just wanted to go more into like public information, uh, like sharing information in a more public way because I felt like you're more likely to get it right and it's also just more democratic. So I went into journalism. I started off cool. at The Guardian in London and then I moved to America to work for ESPN for a couple of years, which I hated. And then I went back to The Guardian, but in the US and now I'm freelance. Amazing. Yeah. And so when you're at The Guardian, how does your, I do, because I actually do read The Guardian, but I'm not that good at reading newspapers. I get my information probably like a lot of people my age just from kind of pooling random mm -hmm, articles from mm -hmm. random things. So when I go to you, I go to your concentrated Instagram to read what you're up to. Um, but with The Guardian, do you have free range on what you're writing about? Or mm -hmm. I, it's different from other papers in that, well, no, that's me being biased to The Guardian. It's not as kind of like toned as others. Actually, I don't mm. know about in the US. Mm, I think we still do have a tone. I, I think it's just harder to spot the tone when it's one that is your own I tone. I think that's what it know? is, Yeah. yeah. Um, so I have a weekly column there and I do have a lot of latitude to kind of write about different things. And I think the way that I think about it when I'm trying to pick a subject is generally I'm looking at what's happening in the news and I'm trying to like give people context on what's happening. Mm. So it's like, let's say there'll be like a, an immigration raid in America. I'm trying to say to them, okay, are things really worse now than they were before under Obama? So like, let's mm. look at like historical trends or are things worse in this part of the country? Are things worse in this part of the country? So we're looking at geographic trends. Is there a specific community that's being targeted? So it's all about like, there's this big scary headline. How can we zoom out and like mm. get the bigger context on it? So that's one way that I do things. And the other way that I do things is like my DMs are always open. And I'm so interested to hear what questions people have about their own personal lives because they will never be the only person that has that question. Totally. And like, you know, that leads to all kinds of interesting things that have got nothing to do with the news. So... A friend of mine was like really, really struggling with contraception and was like, all of it has such a major effect on me, particularly the the pill. Mm -hmm. So I did an illustration about like what really are the side effects of the of the pill. And I actually feel like, sorry to rant, but like again, like if you think about like um, medical packaging, that's a really good opportunity for better data visualization, mm. right? Rather than this incredibly long list so of true. side effects where you're just like, I never read that. It's so awful. Mm. I never, ever read it. Partly because I don't understand whether the thing that's at the bottom of the list is more likely than the thing that's at the top of the list. And like, yeah, it's just really, really hard right. to navigate. So like the, the way that I designed that illustration was showing... If you take the combined contraceptive pill, how much more likely are you to experience depression than someone who's not on the pill? How much more likely are you to experience, like, vaginal irritation? And it's, like, things that the doctor isn't necessarily going to tell mm. you about, which also seems really messed up. It's just, like, here's this list and go and figure it out for yourself. But even in terms of, like, gendered data information, when it comes to things like contraception, there is just hardly any research yeah. into what it actually does to women. I used to on the pill for years and I had to come off it because I realised it actually was making me feel like shit. Yeah. And I can't be on anything yeah. now. I hate it. Um, but it's really interesting when you actually look into how much, like, cumulative research there is on the impact of the pill compared to, like, something really mundane to do with, like, men working in offices. Yeah. And the, 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 the difference is the discrepancies are huge. Yeah. Um, and when you're... Um, Oh, sorry, let's just no, no, I was gonna say yeah. I, like I was gonna say something else. Like it is interesting then on the subjects that do get thoroughly researched from a yeah. woman's perspective are fertility, right? So all of our understanding mm -hmm. of how long our window is to have kids is based on so much research that's done on women's bodies to let us know that actually you probably only have till like 36 and then your chances really, really drop off, blah, blah, blah. What do we really understand about men's bodies when it comes so to reproduction? True. Very, very little because so few studies have been done to understand that. And so the public's understanding of men's fertility is that, yeah, you can probably still have a kid when you're 60, mm. which like, how accurate is that really? It's based on a lot of bad science and 
a lot of like really terrible public anecdotes mm. of like Mick Jagger or whatever. But th- those old men are impregnating very young women. I was just about to say. Who yeah. are offsetting the fact that they have very old sperm. Yeah. So again, it's interesting, not just the things that don't get studied on women's bodies, but the things that get overly, overly mm. studied, which in a way really undermines, really emphasizes this idea that our role on this planet is just to make babies. But that's why it's so important. This is exactly what I want to get down to, like with you, it's that, look at the nuance. So that statistic, which really annoys me, I agree, it's like the six-year-old man has a baby with a 20-year-old. Obviously, she's so fucking fertile that she can like house your really old sperm. Yeah. Um. So that, and then that, you're right, if you look at that for face value, you're like, oh, well, men are more fertile than women. Mm-hmm. But actually, you've got to look at all the other combinations. And I think this is what we've all got to get more savvy at is, reading a headline and then going actually what's the flip side of this on both mm. ends of the spectrum yeah, yeah. because otherwise we do go round walking around believing all of this bullshit scaremongering information yeah um can you tell us because that's my favorite thing about the old men young women you did like a cycle <laughs> it's just the best uh i don't remember what was on the side i was talking about how it's a vicious cycle and i think yeah. i said I, and this is based on like a lot of efforts uh to like you know i spent many yeah, well, whatever. It's also based on my own love life, basically. And <laughs> my swiping and my, like, going out on dates in America. And I think the vicious cycle is something like this. It's like um, heterosexual women say that men their own age are immature. Yeah. So then they date older guys. And that means that men know they can date younger women. They don't have to date women their own age, which means that men don't have to act their own age which makes men immature, which takes you back to the beginning of the cycle. And then it just repeats and repeats and repeats. And what's interesting is that having spoken about this, I've heard from so many women who are like in their 40s, in their 50s, who are like, men will not date me (gasps) at all. Like they're not interested whatsoever. Men who have like, you know, yeah, it's just like, it's so awful, this idea of like our shelf life and Mm. how how horrific that is. It just doesn't affect men in the same way. It's even like an underlying fear. I always think about this. I, I love my boyfriend. He's great. And maybe we'll get married. And if we did, I'm like, I wonder if he'll just leave me for like a 20-year-old. Because you do, like, it's I just... I think about that, which is really messed it's up. It's really messed yeah. up. But it's just a trajectory that you think might happen. Like, if you don't take care of yourself, whereas your husband could get... But it also makes me interrogate my own, the way that all of those values have affected me in terms of my taste, right? Mm. So, like, I wrote an article on this and I mentioned in the article that, like, Growing up to me, George Clooney was attractive and Justin Bieber is, like, way too young for me. So true. And I think, like, George Clooney, I forget what the numbers are. Let's say George Clooney is, like, 25 years older than me and Justin Bieber is, like, five years younger than me. Like, why is it that that is also, like, the the sphere of my reference of, like, Mm. what's acceptable somehow? And yeah, yeah. I and just also, you'd s- feel predatory dating a guy five years younger than you, right? I would find that really like yeah. you'd want to mother him, which is another conditioning thing that you've been told that you're more mothering. Yeah. And I do think also that is another issue. I think the reason, one of the reasons why guys do immature are immature for longer is because they are mothered more and coddled more, whereas girls are. You're just told you're independent. You have to fight for your for yourself kind of yeah, thing yeah yeah so it's all a self-fulfilling prophecy but it's also about it's not just about mothering I also think that just in general men are given more latitude to be selfish mm. and like it's not I don't know there's not the same acceptability about being selfish and just looking out for yourself as a woman there was also funny enough I'm reading a book it's not like a ground but it's Nine Perfect Strangers by Leanne Moriarty you know the one who wrote oh my sister Victor told me about it she said it's really good it is really good yeah, okay. but there's a bit in it interestingly which isn't the point of the book at all but they're talking about how Girls from a very young age are actually, they're not um, ruled by their emotions. We're really controlling them. We'll be like, I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm this, I'm that. Mm. And you kind of, you're allowed to feel them and express them. Whereas guys are very much like they feel an emotion and it takes, because they they don't know what to do with it. And in a funny way, I wonder if that's part of the maturity as well, because just to try and give men a bit of the um, <laughs> lack of privilege, like because I guess they're not entitled as much to access those emotions Maybe it takes them a lot longer to mm. understand who they are. So it's quite an. Int- that made me think. So I was like, "Is quite true actually?" Because I'll quite happily be like, "Oh my god, I'm literally so hormonal. I'm going to cry," and then I'm like, "I feel great," and now I'm sad again. Yeah, I've got no yeah, qualms yeah. doing that in front of anyone. Yeah. And again, this is to me why data is so interesting because you can be like having a disagreement with someone about this stuff. Like I was talking to someone who just believes that a lot of this stuff is much more down to nature than nurture. Mm. And you can look at statistics and actually show like these are the points at which boys and girls have different beliefs about what they're capable of. These are the points at which boys and girls express themselves emotionally differently. Like you can literally look at crying frequency. I remember I wrote a piece that was like, 
looked at crying frequency and it's something like boys and girls have the exact same crying frequency up until a certain age wow. and then girls start uh, boys start and it's not even that girls start crying more often it's that boys just learn to stop crying <gasps> that's so fascinating it's so sad it's so sad as well have you done lots of t- statistics around gender because I bet that's quite yeah. interesting at the minute in terms of like when does gender dysphoria I was listening to a podcast the other day I can't believe they said this I'm not going to say which one it is but they often say things and I'm like you can't say that but basically they're implying that the reason that lots of young boys are trans or decide to transition is because the mum actually wanted a girl is not how it happens. so problematic and as a, so as they interpretation right and yeah. so then they've put on to the boy that they should dress like a, anyway I was like this is ridiculous because I think people I've watched lots of documentaries about um, people who have gender dysphoria and, and transition from a really young age but I think people take a lot of issue with that because they think it's too too young, young to know yeah. but then I would also say again that whole lens of under, so with all of these statistics it's like what is your research question yeah. right so if your research question here is at what point do people start to um, identify with a gender that's different to the one that they were assigned at birth right yeah. I think that is also problematic because it's also looking at it from like a, a binary no, it's not about looking. It's looking at it from the power structure that we already exist in, right? So mm. we exist. Well, I guess yeah, from a binary perspective. But isn't it just as interesting to ask? At what point did I really see myself as a woman? It doesn't matter the fact that I was a woman so assigned true. at birth. Like, at what point did I not have gender dysphoria? At what mm. point did I did I start to feel that like my gender was a big part of my identity? So what if we looked at that research question not from the perspective of like. Because that's problematizing the yes. idea of people who 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 don't identify with a gender, or who identify with a gender that's different to the one that they were assigned at birth. Like it's still totally. saying you're the other, you're the ones with the problem. Whereas I just think it's also just as interesting. Like, at what point did I decide yeah. that I was a girl? You're right, because it's me then going, "This is the norm," and how? Yeah. When did you decide that you weren't that? And yeah. it's the same. And I have to think about this all the time with sexuality. Like, I never had to come out as straight. And I think now that we've luckily uh, we've grown through me growing up now sexuality to me is so like I don't even have to think about it I wouldn't even question and I try to like use non-gender pronouns when I ask about who people are dating Mm -hmm. because you just don't know but I think with gender still I'm still like um learning and unlearning actually is probably the better term to use but it is really fascinating when people are like when did you come out about being not being straight like why is it always the other and why have we decided that's the other yeah I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Yeah, yeah. And again, just like you said, like interrogating, at what point did I develop my own sexuality around, yeah, even if it's a straight sexuality, at what point did I develop that? And also really unpicking to what extent that was informed Mm. by societal norms. I don't know, would I still be straight if I wasn't raised in a straight society? Who knows? I think that too. I actually think that everyone's bi now. (laughs) I just decided. Yeah. I was like, I just think if you didn't have those structures then I think it would be really different. But then I also guess, how far back with your data do you go? Because I guess historically, if you go far back enough, like the um, ideology was completely different. Like mm-hmm. pre-Victorian times, we were living in a world that probably looks like what we're moving towards now in terms of some of the conversations we're having. Yeah. Well, okay, so part of the problem of going really, really far back is that the data is even worse, right? Oh, yeah. So like, you know, you can go far back enough where women weren't even included in oh, any my questions. God, so, true. so there's not even any of that kind of field of reference. And I think one of the things that data is really bad at is understanding why something is the way that it is. So that's kind of why I find it interesting to like share the data and then let people have their own discussion. So if, quote unquote, like, I never really understand when people say quote unquote. I think it just means air quotes. I think, yeah. I think, whatever. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> if if uh, rates of people who identify, oop, I'm going to say that again, sorry. <laughs> Too much gesturing with my hands. If the rates of people who identify as gay and bisexual have gone up over the years, is it because of an increasing willingness and ability to admit that publicly on survey forms? Mm. Or is it about more people identifying that way truly because society has made it has made it 
okay to explore those feelings? Do you know what I mean? Like, is it about admission or is it about exploration? I think that question is one that comes up really frequently when it comes to mental health, especially Mm. like in in generation conversations. So with my mum, she's like, oh, I, I just think no one had depression and like, I don't I don't think it's that <laughs> I think maybe people weren't speaking about it but then it must be a mixture of a mixture of both and that's um in factfulness I can't remember his name Hans Rosling Hans Rosling yeah um he says something like um the fact that we're able to access this inf- information even if it's awful shows progress so even like I think I used me too before as an example but like me too might be horrendous but the fact that we're talking about it shows that we've had some kind of progress yeah, yeah, so yeah, the fact definitely. that the information is there um, which I guess is exactly your level of, like, the statistics. Um, this is the problem. I think the data, people get scared of the data, whereas actually all it, it doesn't mean everything's worse. It just means we know it's happening. Kind yeah, of thing. yeah, yeah. As long as we can also have, like, real conversations about the accuracy of that data mm. in a way that, like, I think what frustrates me is, again, it's like either you dismiss the data or you accept it. And I just want to have more conversations that are in that grey zone about, like, this is what it tells us, this is what it doesn't tell us, this yeah. is what we can be sure of, you know? Like, yeah. I think that's with everything at the minute, because I find this, this is a really nice space to talk about things. And I don't care if I say things wrong, if they're not PC or because you're like learning and exploring. Unfortunately, I think a lot of conversations nowadays are you're either this, or you're that, you're left or you're right, you're you've got and it it's a conversation closer. Yeah. I think we need to move past this point of polarization because it's just completely jarring conversations around anything. Yeah, yeah. And like with your data, it is really interesting to look at. But if someone's got preconceived ideas about what they want to think, they won't even engage and like try to learn. I think it's a weird time of um uh, you have to know which side you're on. And actually, most people aren't even informed enough to know why they've chosen it. Even sometimes yeah. I think, why is it so awful? Like, you know when someone's like, oh, my God, they're right wing. And you're like, I've spoken to someone who's conservative for now, and you wouldn't know until they tell you they're conservative and suddenly mm. you hate them. That idea is quite problematic, I think. Yeah, it is. But I also get why, like, some of it just comes from, like, a survival instinct. Yeah, that's Like, true. I feel like sometimes when I speak to people who have right wing views particularly in America now right because oh, it's God, like yeah. everything has changed where and and over here in the UK right we're no longer and i say we like as someone who's like left of center left i'm just going to say left i don't like left of center it sounds it sounds a bit like watery i'm left yeah um we're no longer in power. So for people to describe, to espouse those views, actually, they are threatening me. Like, mm-hmm. it's genuinely threatening because if you're saying that, like, I, I don't know, if you're saying that, uh, I don't know, in, in, in America, for example, like, non-white communities are being, uh, are under attack right mm-hmm. now, right? Like, I'm an immigrant in America. When someone's saying those things that are anti-immigrant, they are in power. So, like, I don't know. I know what you mean. Do you mean. know what I mean? Like, totally. Yeah. And also, you've got more intersections in terms of race as well than me. So maybe that was a point of privilege to say that I could speak to someone in a certain position and not feel that threat. Maybe. I'm still trying to... I'm really, really still trying to figure out. It's just like I've had so many conversations with people about whether... I just think that after the election, my whole view as a journalist kind of shifted. And before the election, I was trying to... Trying to... Con- trying to convey facts to people who weren't, who didn't necessarily agree with my political standpoint, right? So it used to frustrate me that The Guardian only speaks to The Guardian readers. I'm yeah. like, how am I going to reach people? And now I don't really care about that as much. I really don't. I feel like my role is to inform people who are looking for information. Okay. And if you are right of centre and you don't really actually give a shit at all about finding out about levels of immigration, understanding how much immigrants com- contribute to the economy, all of this stuff, like, I'm not going to waste loads of my energy trying to convince you because it, I think it's a bad use of my time. I know what you mean because I feel like this a bit. It's that emotional labour feeling of like when someone says not all men and you just think, do you know what? I can't be bothered. Yeah. I just don't care. How much work it takes and yeah. how much emotional energy it takes to to get someone to understand, I feel like is it's too, it's too much, yeah. Anyway. But then what do you think about the issue of like echo chambers and just being in that same space and not realizing like the other day I someone shared like an alt-right video on YouTube and I genuinely don't even I've never met a Trump yeah. supporter I've never seen anyone speak in the way they spoke yeah I was so shocked I actually just sat there for like 10 minutes I couldn't believe I'd watched something like feminism real racism real privilege but going yeah, on, yeah. and I wanted to cry I was like it was so baffling to me but it just surprised me to realize how much of an echo chamber mm. I, I exist in but I think those two things can go together right so I think actually echo chambers can be incredibly important for organizing political action right mm, that's true. and that that's that can be a very very effective tool 
But I also think listening to what the other side, if you like, to like paint things in quite a crude way, are doing is actually very important. And you can yes. still do that even within an echo chamber. And that's an important part of strategizing and, and organizing politically. There's a difference between listening to what they're saying and trying to convince them of something else. Right. And so I'm still completely, I have to listen to what, what the far right is saying in America and over here not even the far right, just the right, I'm just not necessarily going to expend loads and loads of my mm. energy trying to convince them that they're wrong. I think that, well, that's the journalist in you see that because you're going out and looking for information whereas I often won't necessarily go out and look for it which is bad. I agree because when you think so ardently about something, it's a bit like the religion argument, like you can't then be like no one else allowed to think something else you know mm. it's quite interesting but you did I just wanted to share this was <laughs> interesting just going back to it you did a statistic or you said something about how being a person of colour in America is is a health risk mm. and those kind of statistic things I, I find so interesting and really personal because we go on about these stupid things about like sugar and red meat and all these conversations around food but we completely forget what the, the pinnacles of health really are I wonder if you could share like a bit more about that yeah, so, so that was like based on the US and it was about, um, I mean, all of those things of food are actually very, very important. They're part of the reason why health risks are different for people of colour yeah. versus white people in America. And I'm sure to a large extent it also exists over here. So people of colour are more likely to live in poverty, which means that they're more likely to to struggle to get access to fresh fruit and vegetables and healthy food to eat. So that already affects their health. They're less likely to, ha to have access to good doctors, to medicine, to be able to afford health insurance, which also obviously affects their health when they do, in fact, get sick. Um, what were the other factors? It's also the way that pain is diagnosed. So, mm. like, one of the scariest statistics I've ever seen was a survey of junior doctors in, in the US. So, I think it was, like, doctors who have finished their medical training and are just, like, about to start practising and it asked them, do you believe that black skin is thicker than white skin? And something like a third of them said yes. As in, they literally, literally thicker? Th literally thicker. And so there's this perception that, like, people of colour are more physically resilient and so they can handle pain more. Mm. And I hear it all the time, even in, like, small conversations I'm having with people. So, like, I was speaking to someone, do you know what ayahuasca is? Yeah, the drug like, in Brazil yeah, or yeah, yeah, yeah. She was saying that she did ayahuasca and she was like, you know, it's funny, like, you know, me and my friends did the same amount, but obviously like she's black and like, she and she's a little bit bigger than me and like nothing happened to her, but me, like, and this is a white woman who's telling me this. And she said it so casually in the thing, it was just like, I was with my black friend, nothing happened to her, but it was very much clearly What's implied. What's her, her body, got to do with that? Because yeah. it's this, under, this belief that like mm. black bodies are somehow more resilient. It's like that trope of strong, independent black woman. And it was always, and everyone would say that even if you're white, people used to go, I'm a strong, independent black woman. It was just like part of that. Do you remember that kind of trope? I don't trope? remember that. No. Oh my God, maybe that was a British thing. What it was, was from it? like a song or something and then everyone was saying like, I'm a strong, independent black woman. People just used like to say Like white it women years. would everyone say Everyone would say it. It was just, but the black was almost like not, people didn't even see the race in it. It was just part of the sentence. It's Whoa, weird. I, I only read. I only read. Like a few years ago, was like, oh well, that's such a weird. That's so weird to say that. Mm. Um, and I do think you're right. With it's definitely true. And I've read it um, with um, what is it called? Oh, oh, how to stay in your lane by Yomi Adeyoke and Elizabeth. Oh, I can't remember her name now. Um, they wrote a bit for the, the Black Girls Bible, and they write a lot about this way mm. that, as especially as Black women, you're viewed in a certain way, and it makes you act that way, and then you get that same kind of. It's just layers of privilege. And it also affects your love life, right? Yeah. To bring it full circle back to that earlier conversation. So, um, you know, it's difficult because you'll be having a conversation with someone about what your what your experiences are like dating as a woman of colour. And, like, I had white friends be like to me, oh, but you're like, you, you're obviously they're people who love me. So they're going to be like, oh, you're really, really pretty. It must be easy for you. And I'm like, no. And you can see this, like, look on their face of, like, but they don't agree with me. They don't get it that yeah. it actually is harder for me. So then you pull out this data set. And the data set comes from OkCupid and it's based on like so, so many people. And it's like everyone signs up to the site. Most people say, I'm willing to date anyone. They check the boxes for anyone. Right. But all of their behavior shows that by and large people still prefer to date within their own race. And then there's a few exceptions of people who are like massively under... <sighs> massively discriminated against online basically and those people are um asian men and this is the this is the american definition of asian so it's like east asian so you know china um the philippines uh yeah east asian cool. um 
Asian women do very, very well on online dating. Black women do incredibly badly, incredibly badly. And basically, the reason why I'm saying all of this is because, again, it comes down to notions of strength. Mm. So it's like Asian as an entire race, East Asian, is perceived as inherently feminine, right? Mm. Which means that, like, men men go crazy for Asian women. It's called yellow fever. I'm obviously talking in massive broad brushstrokes, but this is what the data is showing. It's very fetishized. It's very fetishized, which massively affects Asian men. I've, I've had... British friends who who would never ever describe themselves as racist say, I would say anyone, I'm just not attracted to Chinese men. It's just mm. not my it's just not my thing. And it's like, well, why is it not your yeah. thing? Like interrogate that a little bit more. And then on blackness, um, yeah, black women do not do well on online dating sites because black, sorry, black as a race is perceived as inherently gendered yeah. and masculine. So black men are perceived as too masculine in a way that's frightening, and black women are perceived as masculine so in a way that again in this heteronormative yeah. Like, you know? Oh, God, it's so interesting. It's in, You're right, because when you put the numbers there, people can't deny it, and the only people obviously deny it are the people with privilege that don't want to access that yeah. information yeah. and things. Um, coming back to the health things, I just remember something I saw on Twitter, I think, yesterday, and it was basically how the government had put out, they're doing this new knife-free campaign, and have you seen they've put it on chicken boxes in Morley's? No, no, no. Um, chicken cottage. So instead of plugging thousands of pounds into, I don't know, helping educate people who've maybe used knife or been involved in knife crime, they've written on chicken boxes in the inside of the lid in certain areas. So they've basically targeted black areas. I'm assuming like in London, that's what it sounds like. First of all, you can see on the one hand where some probably white man has gone, oh, this socioeconomic demographic for people probably are more likely to use knives. So they've probably, what they've done is thinking they're using stats. Now I'm like thinking about it. But that is literally so marginalizing and so offensive and oppressive. Like, that's, isn't yeah, that awful? Yeah, yeah. It's actually really, really interesting because I have fights with like, so I used to live in France and I have a few French friends and I have fights with them about the collection of data because in France there's a very different attitude to this stuff, right? And my French friend believes that like when you publish data in this way, it also tells people this is who you are yes, and this is how you will behave, right? So I'm sure there is some grounding of fact that certain like marginalized communities in these areas are more likely yeah. to be affected by knife crime. And so they put these chicken boxes in these areas. But it also says, imagine being like a nine-year-old yeah. kid and opening up that box and it's like, oh, this is this is who you are. Yeah. Like, and so it's, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. Yeah. To a certain extent, or like, yeah, I, I don't know. It's just, it, even if it's not, just the way that it affects your identity mm. to say, this is who we think that you are, yeah, is so horrific. It's awful. But the gross thing about it was you can see how they really think they're being. So like woke, there was a whole like story behind it and like each one. And I was like, oh my God, this just shows how, like, the, the, again, the A to B thing. It's like, how the hell have you got to this answer? And who are you talking to? Like, who are your yeah. rooms that yeah, you're yeah, sitting in yeah. and going like, let's talk about knife crime and things? Yeah. Because I, growing up as a middle class, privately educated white girl, would never freaking see that. Yeah. And so how can we all live in this, operate in the same yeah, world yeah. where it's so... I don't know. And That's as you say, it just shows who the power structures are in government. That yeah. There isn't, there hasn't been a check at any point to say this is a bad idea. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. It's fascinating that those things go through. And it's interesting because the one good thing about like social media, because I don't know, I mean, how what your thoughts on social media? I talk about it all the time, but I think it's really mixed. Like I think it's been really, really good for my career and um I think I get a lot out of it, but I also think it creates anxiety. Like, it's so silly, but I haven't posted anything in maybe, like, six days or whatever, and I've been working on all of this other stuff and just stressed and tired and wanting to take a, a little bit of time off. And it's so funny, like, even as I want to narrate, like, I have been working, like, even though I've been taking, like, I just really totally. want to let you know and everyone who's listening, which is problematic. But, yeah, like, I feel anxious about the fact mm -hmm. that I haven't posted, and I'm like, after I get out of this studio, I want to really make sure that I try and draw something to make sure that I post something <laughs> to make sure that I keep my, like, people interested in my yeah. Instagram account, which yeah. is... It's a ridiculous. lot of pressure. I do the same. And I'll also come on and be like, sorry, I haven't done my stories about actually doing work, but I'm doing stuff. But just go, and that, that's so ridiculous because I'm sure a few years ago, had you been online, the, in, the it would have like insinuated that you weren't doing anything. Whereas yeah. now when I'm actually like working projects or like researching podcasts or whatever, I think, shit, I've got to tell people that I'm doing work. Because I think freelancing as well as an industry is, is something that people still haven't got their teeth into or understand it as much. Mm. And I think as a freelancer, you have double worries about working and then end up 
burning out and then having to do what I think they think freelancers do which is like sleep all day or whatever yeah, yeah, once yeah. every couple of months when you just suddenly like die yeah <laughs> but it also just makes you think about work that truly is not visible at all like mm-hmm. at least you publish this podcast and people know or like she's yeah, doing you know like I don't know if you're like a, a stay-at-home mum or I or or you work on a factory lines like there's mm-hmm. so much work that is just not visible that is so integral to our society and it's like how can you how can we somehow make that more visible whatever maybe that's a random thought anyway no I know what you mean um but yes yeah, so what was going to say after that um so I feel we... like I've been in America too long and I like thinking weird ways that are always adjacent to the conversation that aren't very helpful anyway that's a weird side what's your um biggest difference of living in america like do you oh god it's so hard do you miss do you miss london i really really do i really do it's funny the last time i was here i was just like hanging out with two friends and like their babies and i just like burst out crying and was Mm. just like why am i why am i there um i really miss it and i think i'm there for work i don't think my career i think i would really struggle with my career over here and it, and then it's making me question how much a career matters and to what extent, like, how much money is enough money as well, right? Because mm. I always say to myself, like, I would really struggle over here and I know that I would make a lot less money over here. But would I actually be poor? I wouldn't actually be poor. So, like, is it just greed, ultimately? I have this debate a lot of the time because I often think, like, especially coming from so much privilege, I don't want to then like access so much money that I become like disenfranchised again from like conversations but then I think at the same time I've been doing loads of like um, speaking to lots of people working finance and stuff and now I'm really motivated to make lots of money so I can feed back into the female economy because mm. there's loads of statistics say that women who make money can actually do more with it and we feed it into it it's actually a good thing so I think it depends on how you're using that money obviously if you're going to do a Kylie Jenner and fill your house with rose petals then she filled her house with rose petals uh, her boyfriend for her 22nd birthday filled her fuck off house with rose petals and everyone it was so funny because she was like oh my god and then on Instagram all the everyone was like screenshotting me like oh my god I wish my boyfriend would do this for me and then on Twitter everyone was like do you know how much water how much carbon yeah, yeah, yeah. how much waste these petals are so it was yeah mad that is just really so I don't think unless you're making billions definitely I don't think it's greedy billions definitely not making millions uh but yeah, I don't know how how much. It's really interesting. Like I was, I had a therapist at one point, and I was saying how I worry so much about money, and mm. she was just like, "How much money do you need to have in your bank account to feel safe?" And I was like, "That's such a good question," because it's just like how our notions of success are always just the next thing. Our notions of like making enough money are always just the next thing. Totally. And I think it's really important to actually just set an end point and define it and say, "This is what I'm working towards," so that you can even just I don't know just. Give yourself a bloody break. This is, I think this what next culture is so of the time, because I say this all the time, if I actually sat, sat, sit back and think about what I do each year, I'd be like, oh my God, that's more than I'd even planned to do. But the minute I get that job or get that interview or whatever, I'm like, next thing. Yeah. I don't even know I've done you it. You don't even give yourself a second no. to be like, oh, cool. You yeah. can't enjoy it. But I think that is also the freelancing because it's the uncertainty of like, you get that lumpy salary where some months you might get loads and the next month you get none and then mm. you don't know if you'll get another job and... I totally agree. It's really funny when it comes to money. But I think also with women, when you're speaking to a therapist and like how much makes you comfortable, women often want, they don't view their money as their money. It's like your money and then like what's something happened to your mum or like your yeah, friend. So yeah, that yeah, pot yeah. of money, you don't tend to see it as like Mona's cash. It'll yeah. be like emergency money, family money. Yeah, yeah definitely. So then you're always going to need more because there's always going to be an exponential amount of people that you could potentially need yeah. to like help with that money. But can't you also just like, again actually like calculate that like I could actually try and calculate how much it would cost to like look after a loved one in a care home for 10 years and you're such a pragmatist (laughs) but like I could because otherwise then you just have to live with precarity I'm just going to live the rest of my life being like oh god I could lose all of this at any second that's a really messed up I don't know as someone who's analyzing data like full time do you find that you are are looking do you do do that to datarize your life Yes. Are you very, very organised? It's not about being organised. It's about, like, looking for trends and patterns. Mm. So, like, I have a spreadsheet for my love life. Stop. Where, like, when I was going on all of these dates, like, I, you know, you put in... Such an idea. (laughs) You put in... And I just noticed, like, weird things. Like, it's funny. The spreadsheet started off really, really simple. It was just, like, the date. Like, literally, like, the, the date of the date. The calendar date. Um... 
uh, the name of the person. And I was like, shit, I'm dating so many guys called John. Really? Yeah. Um, and even just from putting in the calendar date, I was like, this is so interesting. I would always go for dates on Monday nights and Tuesday nights and Thursdays and, and like Wednesdays maybe too. Anyway, I would never ever go out for dates on Fridays and Saturdays. I didn't even notice that I was doing it. But it's because I feel like... If you have a bad date on a Friday night, it's kind of like a yeah. bit depressing. It's like, oh, I could have gone out with my friends or whatever. And it showed how much I was deprioritizing my love life because it was just be like, I'll fit you in for like half an hour for a drink. Oh, that's so funny. On a Monday night between work and going to see a friend for dinner because I don't want to feel like I've lost any yeah. of my time. And then it's like a safety blanket around it yeah. as well. The biggest trend for me, which I found so interesting to track, was when I started tracking my periods and then I realised, literally, I am so down before my period. And yeah. then when I'm ovulating, whatever the bit is where you're really happy, I now try and book in meetings around then, oh, try and wow. organise stuff around that time of the month because you're just your best self and yeah. you're glowing. Yeah. <laughs> so it's great. Yeah. That's a really interesting thing to do because I realised that I would, every month, be like, what the fuck is going on? And then it was only when I started period tracking, I was like, oh, this cycle is very telling. It's so funny. I've had the IUD now for like four years and I just the don't The copper one any, or the marina? The marina. Marina, marina. Um, and I just, I've completely forgot. I don't have periods anymore and I've completely oh. forgotten all of it. And it's so bad. Mm, I don't think it's bad. I had the marina call, but that even that impacted me, the hormones and that, really? even though it's really low. Because yeah. I had the copper call, it fell out. <gasps> I've had so many horror shower, stories. And I was like, this is definitely meant to be inside. <gasps> It just completely fell out. I felt like I gave birth to something really small. Honestly, I felt it come out. And then I just WhatsApped everyone I knew and was like, look, this is my coil. Anyways, went back. Oh, they were my like, God. Oh, my God. They were God. like, try the marina coil. It's smaller because the copper coil, they used to only give it to women who'd already had children. But I was like, really hate hormones. That's like, nothing. And literally, honestly, I had it in and I was like crying for a week. I just don't do well with hormones. Yeah, I've heard. So, it's so funny. Again, like, I just think if we knew our bodies better, we'd be able to better anticipate mm. the way that those risks would affect us. I've heard horrible things. But luckily for me, it's just been amazing. Yeah, that's so good. And it's really awful to say... This is so awful to admit. I'm like ashamed of it, but I feel more I feel more stable emotionally and it makes you feel masculine in a way that feels powerful. Because you know that you've got control over your... It's not control over it. It's like they're not even there, really. Like, I don't feel as... But I actually think it's the opposite of powerful and I actually think that our emotions make us powerful. I agree. And it's a very messed up... And also, like, you know, it feels so, like I'm wearing a white... Um, mm. jumpsuit right now and I always wear white and I never give it a second thought about leaking but also like we should live in a world where like if a woman leaks who gives a shit do you know what the weirdest thing is and I think it must be subconscious but whenever I'm doing my period I want to wear white and I think it must be because my brain's suddenly probably in the back of my mind it's like you can't wear white because you're about to come on and I'll literally go to put white trousers on and then I'll think why oh Every, yeah. and I never want to wear them any other time yeah. so it must be my brain making all those links and then I make the wrong decision I'm like white jeans today so funny but I completely agree because I always get worried about I've only ever leaked once but luckily I was wearing gym kit and you couldn't really tell but that is just one of the most ridiculous things yeah it really is and the fact that um Men, when they did the research into the male pill, the reason why they didn't go ahead with doing it a few years ago was because there was this. side effects and they, men could end up depressed. Yeah. <laughs> like all women who take the pill with so many other bad things. Okay, right. I think we've been chatting for ages. Is there anything else, finally, that you like found really interesting that you wanted to bring up or chat about? Mm. Kind of gone all I don't around. know. I, you know, I, I wish it would have been good to have, like, I should have asked you before to have tried to get some, like, read a qu listener questions or something oh, yeah, for me to have true. tried to answer some funny questions with statistics basically just like if anyone wants to um ask me any questions i'm always interested in hearing the questions that people are curious about um in terms of data and i'll do my best to try and answer it so if people want to find you online you are mona shalaby m-o-n-a-c-h-a-l-a-b-i mm -hmm. Correct. very well done yeah, uh, yeah. same on twitter mm -hmm. and then have you got anywhere else that people can find you yeah, but it's fine. That's plenty. Are you sure? Yeah, okay, yeah. cool. Perfect. Thank you so much for <laughs> coming on. I've really me. enjoyed this. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening, guys. Bye.